In Texas, where I grew up and spent most of my first 20 years of life, college football, no offense to you Ohioans or folks from the Northwest, but in Texas, college football is king. And unlike here in Ohio, where the Ohio State University is the only game in town, in other states, like Texas, there are many universities that compete for the loyalty of college football fans. In Texas alone, there are the Texas Tech Red Raiders, the Texas A&M Aggies, the University of Texas Longhorns, the Baylor Bears, the TCU Horn Frogs, the Houston Cougars, the Rice Owls, and the SMU Mustangs. And that's just to name a few. With brightly colored decals, decals on their car, large Texas-sized flags that hang from their front doors, makes your Ohio State flags look like chump change. These things are huge. Really tacky hats and t-shirts and sweatshirts with colors that all clash and don't go together. Nearly everyone in Texas identifies themselves with a university and with its team. To not do so, and I'm not kidding here, to not identify yourself with some school and some team actually makes it difficult to find a job. To whom do you belong? It's a question asked of us whether we know it or not each and every day, and the answer to the question really matters. To whom do you belong? Last week, I made the argument that we are better together. And this message, I think, is one we really need to internalize in this polarizing and divisive time we find ourselves in. Diversity is part of God's intended order of things. Diversity is not something we need to overcome. It's something we need to embrace, which is wonderful. But how? How do we do it? How do we embrace the uniqueness of each and every person and still manage to find the ability to work together towards a common goal? How do we open our doors to everyone here at the church and then find some sense of consensus? How do we be, as Paul puts it, united in the same mind and the same purpose when we all come from such different places and perspectives? The church in Corinth, to whom Paul was writing, was located in one of the most cosmopolitan cities in the entire Roman Empire. Corinth was a port town, a port city, and like any commercial center, it consisted of a variety of ethnic and religious groups all living in the same space, all of which, it appears, are part of the church in that town. And from the two letters Paul wrote to this young, fledgling church in Corinth, we can surmise that these diverse groups of people that made up the church there were at each other's throats. The Greek word translated as quarreling in today's passage is the Greek word eris, who was a Greek goddess known for her propensity to incite war and violence. So the tensions in this church are not surface-level tensions. These are deep conflicts that are threatening to tear the church apart. So Paul does what Paul does. He addresses the issue head-on, the core issue of their strife, right at the opening of his letter. After making an appeal in the name of Jesus, a never a bad strategy, calling on the name of Jesus, he says, listen to me, be in agreement with each other. Have the same mind and the same purpose. 
And then he does something odd. He calls out the four groups in that church that are causing the trouble. There are those he identifies who belong to Paul, who being a citizen of Rome, represents the Roman converts in that church. Then there are those who see themselves as belonging to Apollos, who was for the Greeks. And there are those who also see themselves as belonging to Cephas, which is Peter's Jewish name. Romans, Greeks, and Jews, all identifying with the leader in that church who was one of their own. And then there's this fourth group that is part of the problem. Those who say that they belong to Christ. First, this might seem odd for Paul to call out a group that claims to belong to Christ. But you know this group. They're in every institution, every religious family of faith. They are the ones who see themselves as the true believers, the ones who know what to do and have the sense of right and wrong. They may belong to Christ in their mind, but they do so at the exclusion of everybody else. Each group in that church, Jews, Greeks, Romans, and even those who belong to Christ, they all have a different answer to the question, to whom do you belong? And this reality was tearing the church apart. And Paul, being a tent maker by trade, knows what happens when something that is sewn together begins to tear apart at the seams. Almost 20 years ago, there was a citizen's referendum in Colorado, which, if it had passed, would have revoked the tax-exempt status of churches and other nonprofit organizations in the state. The measure was thankfully voted down, but you can guess it generated lots of debate and consternation. In advertisements on TV and on the radio, in advertisements against the amendment, against the change, there was always presented this really long list of groups who would be impacted if the law changed. The Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts, Kiwanis, Rotary, the YMCA, hospital schools, and always on the list were religious organizations, including the church. In a list with nonprofits and public service organizations, there was the Church of Jesus Christ. And if one didn't know better, one could surmise that this is what a church is, one in a series of good organizations, good institutions that are more or less the same. But we know that's not the case at all. The church is not just another in a long list of nonprofits. I'm not knocking nonprofits. They are a much needed part of the fabric of society, but we are not just like every other nonprofit. Let's be honest, we are not all here because we all embrace one particular goal or vision or piece of legislation. We are not here because we are all fighting for the same cause or have the same interests and personal passions. No, we are all here because, like those first disciples, God called us here. We don't come because of our interests. We come because of God's interest in us. One of the things that I've always wondered about and been intrigued by this church in Corinth was that despite their amazing diversity, something happened at their founding, something happened at the beginning of their story that allowed them, at least for a while it seems, to embrace all their differences in pursuit of a common goal and purpose. Members of the occupying force, the Romans, were in community with the locals, the Greeks, 
And both welcomed a strange group of people who believed in one God, the Jews. I mean, that was rare back then. Think about how rare that is today, that people of different socioeconomic, cultural, and religious backgrounds commit to one cause. I mean, what happened that made something like that possible? A pastor tells the story of a meeting that took place at his church. The group included six people who were talking about multi- multicultural diversity in their particular congregation. This small congregation in Florida is made up of Haitians, African Americans, Caucasians, and Latinos. At the meeting, as the conversation went on and on, a woman named Beverly became more and more agitated. Finally, she banged her hand on the table and explained why the discussion was making her so upset. We are not a social experiment, she announced. We are the church. What mattered, she said, was that we were all children of the living God. The Corinthians do not know, I think, what Beverly knew deep down, and often we don't know it either. We know that baptism is a palpable sign of God's forgiveness. We get that. We get that it's an entrance right into the church, into the family of faith, into the body of Christ. But we often don't imagine baptism actually changing anything. We don't imagine those waters changing anything about the way we identify with a group of people. But that's exactly what baptism does. Baptism redefines who we are and to whom we belong. For identity markers, most of the time we still look to things like race, or age, or economic circumstance, or education, or geographical region. We looked at those markers to create meaningful boundaries and to identify our tribes to whom we belong. If a congregation manages to build up a community that has the same mind and purpose, that goes across these standard markers, we celebrate that and say that congregation is practicing diversity. And we think of them as some remarkable social experiment, some exception to the norm that we should celebrate and be thankful for. Paul, however, in my opinion, when he saw a church that had people from diverse backgrounds working together towards a common goal, I think he would have said, that is a church gathered by the Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. That is the church that we are supposed to be. For Paul, the the death and resurrection of Christ signals the beginning of an age where all the ways the Corinthians and us have divided themselves, are no longer all that interesting or important or defining. To be baptized is to be joined with all the other baptized to the risen life of Christ and to be, as Christ is, numbered among God's children. In our baptism, he seems to say, we have all the identity and all the purpose we will ever need. If we want to be a church that works for justice and peace and reconciliation, if we want to embrace all of our differences but not be defined by them, if we want to be a place of creativity and beauty and real power in the world, we have to embody the hope we proclaim by being of the same mind and the same purpose. We need to claim that we, all of us in our individuality, we belong to Christ. And as a result, this is the hard part, we belong to one another. It's been my observation in ministry that the churches who are most committed to diversity and inclusivity, 
the church is most willing to invite anybody in the door, have the hardest time making an impact. I mean, a lasting impact. With such a breadth of voices, ideas, and perspectives, it can be hard to reach the consensus that's needed to bring about real and lasting change in a church, in a community, and a world. So much energy is spent trying to keep everyone in the building, to keep everyone happy, that it's hard to witness to what God is doing, to what God is calling us to do outside these walls. Which makes me wonder, what if all points of division in any church are merely a presenting symptom of an underlying problem or disease? What if in every church the people, where people are at odds, let me rephrase that, what if in every church where there are people who at times find themselves in conflict with someone else, perhaps in their own pew, what if they've forgotten to whom they belong? they've forgotten that the cross of Christ was God's way of upending our ways of defining and valuing ourselves, but also one another. Everything we do in here, everything, is subject to God's claim on our lives. We are God's children before we are anything else. Fred Craddock, preacher, tells the story of returning to his childhood church in Tennessee, small town Tennessee. In that town, everybody knew everybody, and nothing much ever changed. He hadn't been back in years to his home church. As he walked in the sanctuary that day with some friends from town, he noted that they had new stained glass windows all along the sides of the church. They were gorgeous windows. And at the bottom of each window was the name of the donor for that window. So he walked from window to window, enjoying the art and noticing the names, and he recognized none of the names. As he went around the church, not one name reminded him of anybody he once knew in that town. So he commented out loud, you you guys must have had a lot of new members join since I was a kid. I don't recognize a single name below any of these windows. Oh, those people aren't members here, someone replied. Those windows were made for a church in St. Louis. When the windows arrived, they weren't measured correctly. They wouldn't fit inside the church. So the company told that church they'd make them new windows and told the church in St. Louis to sell them. So we bought them at a discount. And the trustees rejoiced. But then he asked a question that got to the heart of the matter. But don't you want to remove the names? Well, we thought about it, they said. We're just a little church, though. Not many of us here, never any new people. So we kind of like sitting here on Sunday morning, surrounded by the names of Christian people other than ourselves. Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, Baptist, Episcopalian, Methodist, these are not to whom we belong. No offense, but we are not Fairmounters or Presbyterians, or the old guard or the new, or millennials or boomers or the greatest generation or generation X or next. We are not Republicans or Democrats or conservatives or progressives or left or right. We are all children of the living God, claimed by God in the waters of our baptism, empowered by the Holy Spirit each day of our lives, and transformed, changed, altered, by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, a reality 
The cross is a reality that makes possible the impossible, a community of diverse people united in a common purpose and goal. I heard it's been quite a weekend. There were some things on the news, supposedly. Some stuff happened around the country and the world, I guess. I found it fascinating that thousands of people gathered in the same public space within 24 hours of each other, and yet those people could not have been further apart. The future that Christ has called us to is not a future where people are defined by their nationality or party or culture or creed. The future that Christ calls us to is a future defined by love, a love that is revealed to the world in a cross of all things, a cross, a symbol of death that by God's grace overturns every single assumption we have about what is possible when we belong to Christ and as a result to one another. Remember that, and we can do almost anything. Amen.